are on our second week in our sermon series called Tough Questions. And today we look to God's word for some help in answering the question, how should we respond to transgenderism? And I'm going to be looking at several texts, most of which are in your outline. However, if you want to keep your fingers perhaps in two sections of the Bible to follow along, uh, you'll want to take a look at Genesis 1 and Acts 1, and we'll also go a little bit to 1 Timothy, but mostly Genesis 1 and Acts 1. But for the time being, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1, and uh, as you find that place in the scriptures, actually it should be pretty easy, right? The right side of your Bible should be a lot heavier than the left. So I'm going to tell you a little, bit, a little story. I have four children, and uh, when Sarah was pregnant with the first three, we decided we'd love to know the gender as soon as Possible. We enjoyed naming them while in utero, talking to them, praying for them, and telling others about them before they came screaming into the world. But when Sarah was pregnant with Silas, our youngest, I thought it might be fun to ask the ultrasound technician to not tell us the gender, right? At that 20-week mark, I thought, this might be fun. Let's just not, let's, let's do what people did for like millennia before now, right? Let's just find out the gender of the baby when the baby is born. I thought we'd known for the last three So let's see what it would be like to not know this time and be surprised when she or he made their appearance. And Sarah told me that she would be, in no uncertain terms, absolutely fine with me not knowing the gender of the baby. (laughs) She did not mind that at all. She had no objection to her knowing and me not knowing. Well, yours truly is, quite frankly, not mature enough to handle that she would know and that I would not know. So checkmate, you win. We found out the gender of the baby. And that's just the way it goes. I have a very tough life, as you can see, so you can pray for me. I wasn't present at your birth or the birth of your children, but I'd be willing to wager that once you were born, someone exclaimed, it's a girl or it's a boy. And this has been the case from the earliest of times. The first recorded birth in the scriptures is in Genesis 4 and verse 1, which our family actually recently read through in our time of family devotion, which reads, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with help of the Lord. In the original Hebrew, it's literally, I have had a male child or a man child. Even the first couple ever, the first parents ever, had no parenting books, no prenatal classes, no science courses to look back on, no biology or anatomy textbooks to consult, and no doctors present. And without any of this knowledge, Eve was able to say, I have had a male child. She wasn't assigning Cain's gender. She was telling it like it was. And she says that God was the one who gave it to her. Again, Genesis 4 and verse 1, I have had a male child or a man child with the help of the Lord. And this leads us to our first point in your outline. Your gender is a gift from our good creator, God. Your gender is a gift from our good creator, God. We don't choose gender. We are what we are. We have been given what we have been given. We see this from the very beginning of creation. Genesis 1 and verse 27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female he created them. In the New Testament, Jesus himself looks back and says in Matthew 19, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
Gender is not chosen by us or assigned by someone to another. It is a gift given by God to us as he makes us in his image and his likeness. Even think about when God promises a child to someone in the Bible. Genesis 17 and verse 15, God says to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. Verse 16, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, and she shall become nations, king of people shall come from her. I will give you a son by her. Not I will give you a child and you can decide what the child will be. I will give you a son by her. Speaking of our own Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, looking forward to his coming, prophesying of him in Isaiah chapter 7, we read, Therefore the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall, you shall call his name Emmanuel. Luke 1 and verse 13, the angel speaking to Zechariah says, For your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Luke 1 and verse 31, speaking to Mary, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So I raise this secondarily in helping us to understand transgenderism, but primarily because of the glory of God. You see, as generous as God is, as kind and as gracious as he is, as slow to anger and as abounding in mercy and steadfast love as he is, at least one thing really torques him. And that is the sharing of his glory. That's something God simply does not do. Isaiah 42 and verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. And so to take credit or to take charge of something that is God and God's alone is to rob him of his glory. It's like God would say, whoa, 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 whoa. It's my job. It's what I do. That's my thing. I create all people in my image, male and female, and their design is very good and needs no correction and needs no assigning from you. I'll actually take care of that myself. Which leads us to our second point. All that God creates is very good, including our bodies. God created the world and everything in it and the universe and everything in it in six days, and on the seventh, he rested. And you can count it. Day one, two, three, four, five, six... Genesis 1.4, 110, 121, and 125. God looked back on all he created and saw that it was good. In fact, day six, he was so impressed with all that he created, he said it twice and said it's actually very good. Everything God creates is good. But now since Genesis 3, everything God creates is affected and infected by the fall. But that doesn't mean his creation his plan, his design is bad. God's creation is good. His plan is good. His design for us as a girl or a boy, as a man or a woman, as a female or male, is as he himself says in Genesis 1. It's very good. And 1 Timothy 4 and verse 4 says, For everything by, created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. See, we're not just souls, like, trapped inside some fleshly container. And we're not just souls that are just random, like, I guess we'll just shove the soul in a body. Whatever the body has doesn't really matter. It's just the soul that matters. That's not true. It was God's will for us to be embodied souls. And if we submit to our creator, we accept our bodies and our biological created God-given sex as good gifts from him. 
and seek to live accordingly. And therefore, God would have us accept his design for us as he has sovereignly planned, and to do so with thanksgiving. Now, that doesn't mean we don't try to correct what's wrong to bring healing when there's sickness, right? That doesn't mean that we don't take advantage of the intelligence and the science and the technology that God has given to us as great gifts so that we can live life and live it to the fullest. But the goal, however, is to correct something that is wrong, that is malfunctioning, something that's sick, that's affected by the fall, not change God's design for us as persons made in the image of God as male and female. When we're seeking to bring healing to someone's body, we're seeking to be agents of restoration. Restoring God's intention for people is a good and godly aim. Our oldest son, Justin, was born with a heart defect that we detected at a very early... Well, we didn't detect it, right? We're not like feeding him. Something's wrong. No, the doctors detected it at a very early age and suggested a course of treatment and a course of actions. And he would have a heart uh, surgery on his heart at a very, very early age. And they would go in through his little pudgy thigh and they would correct this in a a fairly non-invasive um, it's funny, like, it's actually not a big, it's heart surgery. They're like, oh, it's fairly non-invasive, it's not a big deal. Heart surgery on my firstborn. I'm okay, I'm okay. And so we chose to have that procedure done. Fun fact, the same week that we moved to Northern Kentucky, it was a busy time. Pre-existing conditions, remember those days? So, had to get it done. And now his heart functions well, and we were able to, by God's grace, uh, have that corrected. Um, this is not the same as gender reassignment surgery in which someone's anatomy functions as it should but is altered to better match the way someone feels. So this, that surgery proposes that the way one was created was wrong. God erroneously placed a man inside a woman's body and so they're having corrective surgery so that someone can, someone can have a body that matches the way that they truly feel and the way that they truly think. That's not the same. Uh, that is to assume that the design was wrong. Not that this person was uh, affected by the fall and God has given us the grace of technology and modern day medicine that we can correct it. Uh, that is to assume that the design in and of itself was wrong. And so the person seeks to undergo incredibly invasive surgery in an attempt to right the wrong. Psalm 18 and verse 30 says, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. In other words, God doesn't make mistakes and he doesn't create any junk. But his creation is good. His plan is very good. Gender dysphoria is defined as a distressed state arising from a conflict between a person's gender identity, how they themselves think about themselves, how they identify themselves, and the sex the person was given at birth. Let me say that again. Gender dysphoria is defined as uh, a distressed state arising from conflict between a person's gender identity how they identify themselves, how they feel, how they think, and the sex the person was given, we know by God, at birth. And so although someone is a man, he is deeply, deeply distressed because he himself 
identifies, thinks, feels, even functions, reasons more as a woman than the man that God created him to be. It's when a woman is conflicted because she, being a woman, being born a woman, thinks and feels and even, even may act more like a man than the woman that she was created to be. Now, sin is never simple. Sin is never simple. I think oftentimes we can have a reaction to these, well, they, they ought not do that. Well, well, thank you, Captain Obvious. That's great. Well, they shouldn't do that. I'll tell you why they're distressed. It's sin. Sin distresses people. When we sin less, we are distressed less. Okay, sin is never simple. And you've wrestled with sin in your life. How many times have you said, that was easy. It was not a big deal. That's really. No, I wrestled with this sin. I kind of pinned it early on. Sin is never simple. And so when we think about gender dysphoria, I don't think we should deny symptoms. And I don't think we should say that this is a simple thing. This shouldn't bring about an eye roll or a dismissal from us as Christians. Just stop doing that. In fact, it's all too common for Christians' response to this is to give a set of do's and don'ts, right? Well, don't do that. Well, do this. Well, that's a sin, so stop that. And while those statements are oftentimes true, right? It is sin. They ought not do that. How silly it is us for Christians who know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Christ Jesus, Galatians 2 and verse 16, to give such a simple-minded response, albeit accurate, it may not be the best. Don't get me wrong, we feel good giving it. Spoke truth. But what fruit did it produce? Other than us walking away with a puffed-up chest knowing that we said something that is technically true. Imagine for a moment... Not being unhappy with the way you look or the the skills you have or your height or your skin tone. But the, the very fiber of who you are as a person, male or female. It's not something you only think about when you put on a bathing suit. Only think about when you see yourself in a bathroom mirror or pass a window and you see a reflection of yourself. This is a daunting haunting thing that is very, very hard. And if there's one thing I've realized as I've read and researched and prayed and studied and spoken with people prior to preaching this sermon, it's this. This is not primarily a biological discussion. This is not primarily an anatomical discussion. This is not even the same thing as sexual orientation, homosexuality. I think oftentimes we just kind of, we lump it together because it's like, well, it's the T and LGBTQ, like it's just all lumped together. This is, this is different from sexual orientation. This is what we would call an ontological discussion. Ontology is the study of being. When people are wrestling with this, when they are going through gender dysphoria, it's not really, I just wish I looked different. It's, it's more than that. You have to understand that. It's not just, oh, I wish I, I wish I had different body parts. It's not just that. Those who struggle to any degree with gender dysphoria are not struggling with biology, but ontology. It's their 
being. It's how they feel about who they are and about how they've been created. People are born, male or female, but genuinely, from the bottom of their heart, with everything that they know to be true, they have feelings about their gender that don't fit with their God-given sex. This is more ontological than it is just biological. You say, wow, what causes this? Sin, right? Okay, yeah. No one, no one really knows. Like, we can't now, yeah, sin. I, I know, sin causes everything that's, that's, like, I have a little ache in myself right now. It's caused by sin. I, I understand. But it's hard to narrow it down to what, what causes it. What might that sin look like? What's being caused there? No one really knows. Some say genetics are involved. And while they might be, the fact is true hard science really doesn't have anything conclusive to say that genetics are a primary factor. Environment certainly plays a factor. My goodness, in my research I read of a man who speaks of the damage that was done to him by his grandmother who encouraged him to wear a dress when he was a boy, often. That's going to have an impact. I remember one of the places that we lived at one time, one of our neighbors, uh, their young boy would frequently be seen in a Tinkerbell dress playing outside in the front or back yard often. That's going to have an effect. But again, this isn't the case with everyone. There are cases where people who wrestle with gender dysphoria or are transgender people grew up in homes that had none of that. And so it's not the case with everyone. You can't say that's causation. You can't just establish something and say, well, everyone, everyone who died yesterday drank milk as a child. Milk must be fatal. Like, we can't just connect the dots any way that we want and say, oh, well, then that's clearly causation. But what is the case with everyone is what we call the noetic effect of sin. And that is sin's effect on our minds. How we think, how we Reason, how we interpret what we feel and then make decisions based on those feelings. And that's true across the board. The noetic effect of sin affects everybody, male, female, young, old, Christian and non-Christian alike. And that's why I think that, quite frankly, we can all relate to people who struggle with gender dysphoria perhaps more than we may realize. You say, I've never, nope, nope, not true. Uh, That would be a false statement. I've never experienced that in my life. Well, let's just drop the gender for a minute and talk about dysphoria. In your outline, I put the definition of dysphoria. A state of feeling very unhappy, uneasy, or dissatisfied. A state of feeling very unhappy, uneasy, or dissatisfied. Some of you were dysphoric in the parking lot. Some of us were just fork in the lobby before because they ran out of coffee. We've all experienced dysphoria. A state of feeling very unhappy, uneasy, or dissatisfied. In fact, I would argue that the first recorded case of dysphoria is in the actual Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, verses 7 and following, right after Adam and Eve eat the fruit... Both of their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked and all of a sudden they became very uneasy, dissatisfied, and unhappy and sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They were all of a sudden very uneasy, very unhappy, very dissatisfied. 
I'm fairly certain that if we polled the audience, we'd all admit to having experienced dysphoria of some sort. Some of us, maybe even most of us, as it relates to how God created our bodies. You wish you were a little bit taller or shorter or had a better mind to fully grasp certain things, to to think faster or were able to run faster or able to do more or had to do less. We call this discontentment. Now, I'm not downplaying the struggle. The struggle is real. But you and I as Christians, as we struggle, we don't struggle as the world struggles because we have an advocate, we have a savior, Christ the Lord. And so we're dysphoric about a circumstance in our life or maybe even dysphoric about how God created us. You might even be dysphoric about your gender or your weight or your height or your skin color or your eye color, but anything we can say, that's not really who I am. I'm not defined by what I'm discontent with. I'm not defined by my physical features or my circumstances or my abilities. I know from God's word that I'm a blood-bought sinner by the grace of God. And I'm loved and I'm valued. I'm a child of God. I am saved. See, we have the gospel. As dysphoric as we may be, we have good, good news. And that doesn't mean we don't struggle. Not at all. The struggle is real. But so is the gospel. And we have God, the Holy Spirit, living within us, who is our counselor and our helper, who reminds us who we really, really are in Christ. And so as real as the struggle is, we go back to the gospel. We go back to the word of God. And we know that the temptations are hard, very hard. But that God provides for all our needs according to his riches and glory and gives grace to help in our times of most dire needs. And so you and I can wrestle with our dysphoria. It's not easy. But we can wrestle with the areas in our life with which we are discontent. We can wrestle with the areas in our life where we're tempted to be identified by something that we wish were different or something that is affecting us or something that God has created within us either biologically or otherwise. But we move back to remembering who we are in Christ. And I raise this to remind you, yes, of who you are in Christ, And also to let you know that the vast majority of transgender people out there don't have that help that you have. Friends, the word of God will not allow us to reduce transgenderism to just an issue. It's people. A person's a person transgender and all. And so we need to think about this through the lens of people, not just an issue. Where do you stand on that? Where do you stand on that? It's not just an issue. It's people. It's not just a cultural phenomenon of some sort. We're talking about people. And no matter what they feel or what they even do to alter their bodies, each one of them is precious and valued and created in the imago Dei, the image of God. And if you speak to them, speak to them, not read about them, speak to them, you will realize that most of these people don't have a personal political agenda and aren't really trying to engage in a culture war but are trying to cope with the dysphoria, with the discontentment, just like you and I cope with our own dysphoria and our own discontentment, but we have the gospel. 
and they do not. And they live in their lostness and we have hope because of Christ. What about you? When was the last time that you were just flat out disappointment, discontent with the cards you've been dealt? You probably don't have to look back too far. But we have Jesus and we have the gospel. And so on that note, I would like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. In your outline, I've listed five points of application concerning transgender people. These are the five points that I've chosen for us to focus on. They're surely not exhaustive. There are gobs and gobs of questions that I would love to address. That, quite frankly, it's gobs and gobs of questions I'd love to ask. Right? Can one of you come up here? But there's gobs and gobs of questions that I would love to be able to address We have a limited amount of time. And so in my praying and in my studying, I've chosen to narrow it down to these five points of application concerning transgender people. And first of all, I just want to encourage you, uh, letter A there, ask God today to be used by him to reach people that are hurting. Uh, Would you do that? Would you ask God to use you to reach people that are hurting? hurting, to reach people that are lost, to reach people that are hopeless and helpless, to reach people that are like even lost in their lostness, like so far gone, they've traveled so far away from truth, ask God to use you to reach people who are lost and hurting. We remember the words of Romans 12.1, as we're uh, called to, or Romans 12.1 and 2, we're called to be living sacrifices, right? Holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. This is reasonable, This is not above and beyond. It's reasonable to be used by God to be living sacrifices, to engage with hard issues face-to-face with people seeking to point them to Christ and to give them hope and help that you found in the gospel. Not engaging from afar, not just dropping, like, just launching truth bombs, like, technically that's true, but to engage people where the real fight is fought. And to engage them with truth and to engage them with truth and love. Ask God to use you to do these things. To remind you of the words that we find in Philippians chapter 1. That we're to honor Christ no matter what. And that no matter what the cost is to live as Christ and to die is gain. It's win-win. Ask God today to be used by him to reach people that are hurting. And I think in order to do that, that leads us to our next which is remind yourself of the battle in which God has called us to fight. Uh, And for that, I would like to direct your attention to Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Now, we've not spent time in Acts. Fun fact, we're going to, actually. We have a sermon series that plans to take us through Acts. But we've not spent time in Acts. This is the very beginning of Acts. Let me give you a little bit of background, okay? This is the 11, okay, not the 12, because Judas is dead. This is the 11 apostles who are gathered together with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If I may, I'd like to recap the type of past two months that they've had, right? Past 50 days. It's been a wild ride. 
50 days ago-ish, they entered Jerusalem with Jesus to shouts of praise, people triumphantly welcoming them and Jesus into Jerusalem, into the city just before Passover. They're laying down palm branches. We celebrate this on Palm Sunday. Laying down palm branches at the feet of Jesus as he rides into the city in triumph. Not long after that, Jesus washes his disciples' feet, reminding us, even to this day, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Not long after that, Jesus sits there and has the last supper with his disciples, right? At that time, the twelve. They think they're gathered together for Passover. Jesus is totally going to change the context of that forever, forever. And that's where you and I engage today in the Lord's Supper, in communion, as we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Christ for sinners such as you and me. And then after that, Jesus was arrested. And then after that, Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. And then after that, Jesus was tried and found guilty of treason and was sentenced to death. And he was crucified between two thieves. And he died. And they did with Jesus' body what everybody does with dead bodies back then. They bury them. And so they buried Jesus in a tomb. And here's where it gets a little different, right? Yeah, because Jesus rose on the third day, right? Took up his own body, took up his own life, and walked out of the tomb like hashtag not a big deal. And then he lived for the rest of his earthly life for the next 40 days, making an appearance to many people. In fact, at one time, at least 500 people. And here he is with his disciples, with the 11, because, oh, here's something else that happened. Judas had betrayed Jesus, and so he couldn't handle his sin, and he didn't repent, and he hung himself, and his intestines fell out. So it's been a wild ride. So now here we are in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, and we read these words. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Like, hey, hey, we've seen a lot. It's been A crazy three years. Um, And you've died and you've rose again. You still have those holes in your hands. Um, Can you, are you, will you now restore? Can we, can we do it now? Can can you do it now? Is this the time? Are you about to, you about to do it? Can you make things right? Can you just rule and reign here right now? We're sick of Rome. We're sick of paganism. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus responds in verse 7. Uh, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's like, yeah, don't worry about that. Don't pay no attention to that. That's not for you to think about. That's not for you to worry about. That's, that's flat out what Jesus says, right? He, it's just not for you to worry about that. He says, but you will receive power, verse 8, when, you, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You're going to receive power, and you will be my witnesses. And then, just when it couldn't get any weirder, verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. Sure. Okay. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And then, wait, wait, there's more. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, okay, Doing what you and I would do if we were there. Watch. I'm pretty sure it would look a little something like this. Two men in robes stood by them and said, Am I got to laugh? Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Really? Why do I have to admit, I would have trouble. I think you know me a little bit. 
I would have trouble taking this question seriously and not answering with just a hint of sarcasm. Why am I looking into heaven? Why am I, look, why am I looking into heaven? I like finding shapes in the clouds. That and the man that I was just talking to just floated away. <laughs> why am I looking into heaven? Where, what's with the robes? Where did you, what is going on? Why, I'm, why I, was not, I was destined not to be an apostle. I'd run my mouth. I, it would not go well. Let's have Peter be born in the 70s, in the 20th century, where the church would be firmly established. That's, that's what sure took place when it came to my plan. Verse 10. Uh, sorry, verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. But looking back, back at verse 8, you will be my witnesses. Witnesses are those who see something and tell others about it. Plain and simple, quite frankly. A witness for Jesus Christ is someone who tells the truth about him. And this was the foremost purpose for which the Holy Spirit is given to the 11 in Acts chapter 1. And quite frankly, your primary calling and my primary calling as a believer to be witnesses. You have witnessed what God has done in your life. Now go be witnesses and tell others about it. This is actually a little different from the Great Commission, right? Because technically speaking, Jesus isn't commanding them to do anything. He's telling them what they will be. He's not saying, you should be witnesses. Nope. You will be my witnesses. Like, you can't help it. In fact, Luke, who's writing uh, the Acts of the Apostles, he finishes the Gospel of Acts, recording something similar Luke 24 and verse 46 He said to them, thus it is written, this is Jesus talking, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You are. It's not you should be. Let me encourage you to be. Let me ask you to be. You are witnesses of these things. Jesus is saying, you're going to be associated with me. Can't unring a bell. Can't unsee what you've seen. You've already seen it. In a very real way, people will base their opinion of me on you. Why? Because they know you're with me and they and and know you were impacted by me and know you love me and you can't help it. So you will be my witnesses. So the question is not, are you a witness? You are. The question is to the degree of efficacy of your witness. How effective a witness are you? But we are witnesses. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. While you do that, let me tell you a little parable. Let's say you're at community group. Winding up, just about done. Some people are making a mad dash for the door, they've got to go, they've got kids, they've got to wake up early, whatever, they're, they're gone. And then other, some other people are hanging around. And you might lead this community group, host this community group, or just attend this community group. You decide. Um, and uh, Samantha pulls you aside and says, hey, you have a minute? And you're like, yeah, sure. And she says, I got to tell you something. I think I, I want to be baptized. So you do all the Grace Fellowship Churchisms of baptism. And you say, 
That's great. That's wonderful. That's really cool that you want to take that step of faith and you should be in a baptism class and that's coming up soon. And do me a favor, once you go through that and you realize what service you're going to be baptized in, let us know because we can, maybe most of our community group can go. We'd love to celebrate with you. That would be great. She says, can you, can you just... I say, yeah, sure. And you go aside. And she says... See, here's the thing. Like, I wasn't, I don't know how to say this. I, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't born Samantha. I was born Samuel. Like a long Long time, like 20-something years ago, I invested like a lot of money and a lot of time into making me the woman that you have thought of me to be for as long as you've known me. And for as long as I've, you know, so for the past year that I've been in this group and the past two, two and a half years that I've been part of the church... That, that, that's, my, that's my story. And you sit there and you listen. And then something happens. Your eyes leave Sam's and just look past Sam. And you see an 11-year-old girl sitting on the couch in the other room playing on an iPad. And Sam notices your eyes shift. And Sam says, yeah, I adopted her. You know, from, I mean, she was just months old. She's only ever known me as mom. And you go, oh. And Sam says, I don't know what, it's it's such a it's such a mess. I don't know what to do, and I don't want to live a lie, but I really want to be baptized. I, I, I God has changed my life, and I don't want to live this lie. But how do I untangle this? What do I what do I do? Maybe I, am I too far gone? Am I? As a reminder, the name of this series is tough questions. Now, what would you say? What would you do? See, I think it's important that we take this issue out of the culture and place it in the kitchen. Because this is not just a cultural phenomenon. This involves frustrating as it may be, I actually could never answer that question and unpack that for you completely in this sermon. What I would like to do is call your attention to what have, would have had to have happened in order for this moment to even come about. Because this didn't start right here and then. First of all, I want you to know this. 
that if a person were to ever disclose something like this to you, I hope and pray you would be unbelievably humbled, honored, and thankful to God. Why? Because what this person, what Sam is doing is very, very hard. And if someone did that with you, it says a lot. It says a lot. It says that they trust you. It says that they sense that you uh, love them or at the very least care a lot about them. It says that they sense that there's safety in speaking to you about these things. And they're coming out of the darkness and standing in the light. And that's never easy. And sin is never simple. And they don't know what you're going to say, but they know you well enough that they can do this without fear. And so if you ever have that privilege and that opportunity To be a person who would receive that disclosure, oh, friend, I hope you would be unbelievably thankful to God and humbled and honored and say, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. Because it takes a lot of courage. But here's the thing. In the parable I just told you, Sam's been part of the community group for the past year part of the church for, I don't know, two, two and a half years. My question is this. Let's say Sam was headed to the group for the first time, right? Ten-year-old in the back. Driving. Pull up to the group's location, to the home, and sees a car parked in the driveway with a bumper sticker that says, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. What might Sam have done? I think Sam would have said, you know what, let's get ice cream instead. Here's the thing. What if Sam did attend the community group for the first time? I want to know that if Sam sat across from somebody in that community group and who was wearing a shirt that said, take back the rainbow... Do you think Sam would come back a second time? See, here's the thing. I want to know if Sam was looking on social media and saw a member of the community group post a meme that said, pray away the gay or some other nonsense. What are the odds that you would ever, ever have the opportunity to speak to Sam as God was working in Sam's life? 1 Timothy 6, in verse 11, Paul says to Timothy, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And that's talking about the pursuit of money and things you could read in the first ten verses of the chapter. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were made to which you were called, excuse me, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So I'm going to reread verse 12. I'm going to read the first seven words, and I'm going to add my own personal emphasis. Fight the good fight of the faith. Fight the good fight of 
the faith. It's not unlike what we read in 1 Timothy 1, where Paul says in verse 18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. It's not unlike what Paul says at the end of his life in 2 Timothy, where he says, I have fought what? The good fight. I have finished the race. Now, the New Testament is replete with language reminding Christians that we are to fight. Ephesians 6 tells us to put on the whole armor of God. I've preached on this passage tons of times. And we're reminded as we look at the armor that there's nothing to protect our back. And therefore, to walk away from a fight, to walk away from the fight of faith that we're called to fight, is not a good thing. And Paul tells Timothy that he should fight what? The good fight of the faith. And Before he dies, he says that that's what he did as well. Now, see, there are many fights to be had, but what I would propose to you is that they're not all worth fighting. And if we take God's word seriously as it's written, we'll understand the to mean the. And if the means the, we would do well to ensure we're fighting the good fight of the faith, realizing there's probably a lot of fights that would not fall into that category. Because not every fight is the good fight. There's obviously a good fight of the faith. What might that fight be? Well, we look back to Acts chapter 1 and we see what God commissioned his disciples to do just before he floated away from them into the stratosphere. And he said, I'll give you the Holy Spirit so you can be witnesses. So that you can tell other people about me. Not so that you could just drop truth bombs on people or collect whatever the latest merch is available that has pithy one-liners. Because we want to fight what? The good fight of the faith. And the two men in robes asked the 11 apostles, why are they looking up to heaven? It's not as silly as I made it out to be. It's a rebuke. They're lamenting the fact that Christ has gone and they're looking for him to return. He says he'll come back. Maybe he'll come back in a minute. I just wanted to take in a good view. It's pretty. They're looking for him to return. Why? Because of what they asked him two verses ago. They want him to establish the kingdom. They want him to make everything right with their world that's wrong. They want a revolution. They want to see God reign here on earth now. And the men in robes call them to task and say, hey, Hey, eyes down here. He'll come back. He's coming back. Don't worry. You got work to do. Go. He'll come back the same way that he left. It'll be awesome. But for now, go. It's about to get weirder. You're about to have tongues of fire float above your head, and people are going to understand, yeah, you've only touched the outskirts of crazy town. Just go. Go. Be witnesses. Tell people what you've seen. Tell people what you've seen God do for you and in you. You've got a story to tell. Not just a truth bomb to drop. Do you know that God is saving transgender people? Do you know that? It should come as no surprise, right? Even them, right? That's ridiculous. God saves people. We should, be not, we should not be surprised that the gospel impacts the hearts of all people. 
God saves transgender people. He's going to do it with or without you. He doesn't need your help. And anytime we think God needs our help, we're probably in a bad way, right? He needs me. He actually kind of doesn't. But he's going to do it with or without you. But here's the question. I want to know, are you living your life today that would set you up in a way for God to work through you? Or will he have to work around you? He's going to do it either way. But let me tell you something. Personal opinion. You want a piece of that action. I had the privilege of sitting across from somebody last week at lunch who realized right in, right in my presence that they were saved. I didn't lead this person to Christ. I led them to lunch. Okay, so I didn't, it, this was not, I wasn't working in their life with them. I was not, really not at all. We just wanted to catch up. Said he wanted to talk about what the Lord is doing in his life. And we were just talking back and forth. And he's wondering if he's saved and thinks this, this is coming about. And then you could just see, boom, just the realization come into his eyes. And he goes, oh my God in heaven, I am a Christian. I am saved. God saved me. He's changed my heart. He's changed my mind. I'm a new creature. I don't do the old things that I, I don't want to, want to change. I can't. Lots of sentence fragments. I'm I'm saved. Let me tell you something. Having a front row seat to that is awesome. I don't think I would have been given that front row seat if for years before that, just launched truth bombs. Well, it's true. You ought not do that. Do you think God would have saved him anyway? I'm going to go with, yes, he would have. Around me. Are you living your life in such a way that when Sam comes talking, Sam would think to speak to you? God's going to save Sam. But what about you? I'm going to skip to point D. And then I'm going to wrap up. I think we need to show compassion by not oversimplifying sin issues that you either haven't experienced or may know very little about. I don't know much about it. I know it's wrong. Let me see if I can draw a a little bit of a parallel, and I hope this goes well. Um, I am uh, a five foot nine-ish I weigh 173 pounds. You can't look back on my life and see any real, credible struggle with weight loss or gain. And I go to the gym, but it's, it's genetics, bro. It's not because I'm some committed gym. You look at me long enough, you realize, yeah, you're not too committed to the gym. Like, so so it's, it's not me. It's just... Well, let's say you kick off the year and you say, I really want to have a New Year's resolution. I want to really lose some weight. I gotta, will you pray for me? Because I don't really know how to do that. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I can pray for you, but how about you just eat less? <laughs> like caloric intake, everything to count those. How about you just, why do you join a gym? Why don't you just, right? <laughs> it shouldn't be that hard. But I don't know what the heck I'm talking about. And there's elements of truth to what I'm saying. 
But how helpful is that? I'm simplifying a very complex issue. I'm simplifying, oversimplifying an issue that's also very personal and is not the same with one person to another. You should just stop doing that. The Proverbs 18.13 says, If one gives an answer before he, what? Hears. It is his folly and his shame. Well, I've got to listen. I know what the Bible says. The Bible says you need to hear. Proverbs 18.15 says, An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. And so I think if we want God to work through us and not around us, we would do well to hold fast to the truth and also listen really well so that we would know just how to apply that truth in each individual circumstance because no two are cookie-cutter alike. You know, Jesus is coming back. He really is. And people have been saying he's coming back very soon for a long time. But I'm technically a little more right than them because I'm technically closer to his return than they were. So he really is coming back sooner than them. Than they feel. He's coming back. And when he comes back, he is going to write everything that is wrong with this world. Right, everything that is wrong with our society. Make everything fall into line with how he would have it be done. And until then, I think God would have us be effective witnesses. I don't know that God very much appreciates me saying, all right, I know you're going to establish your kingdom when you come back, but I'm going to get a head start for you. I'm going to start building it over here. I'm going to fight this war. And God's like, hey, how about you just be witnesses and tell people about Jesus? Can you just be witnesses? You've had a firsthand experience with me. Why don't you tell people about me? Be my witnesses. Now, I think I'd rather build the kingdom. God's, God's like, I don't need to sub that out to you. I don't need you to be my kingdom subcontractor. I need you to be my witnesses and tell others about what I have done in your life through my son, Jesus Christ. Now go and be witnesses. And when I come back, I'll handle it all. And in the meantime, go and be witnesses for prodigal sons who are going to come home, some of which who thought they were daughters while they were gone. But the important thing is that God would work through us and that they come You have a story to tell and a gospel to preach and a Jesus to share. And people need to know that there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. You can be God's witnesses. May God work through you and not around you when Sam comes speaking. God, this is such an impossible task to speak to and have left many questions unanswered and maybe created more questions in people's minds than um, have given answers. And uh, your servant is weak and inept, but I pray that you, Lord, in my weakness would show yourself to be strong, would show yourself to be true, that you, Lord, would impact our minds and our hearts with your word, and that you would cause us to represent you well as long as you tarry that we would be effective witnesses. Thank you for doing things in our life that we can bear witness to. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for calling us out of darkness into your marvelous, marvelous light. 
And so as we go, Lord, would you help us to be the effective witnesses that you've empowered us to be? And would you be pleased to work through us to do your good work of of saving people to the uttermost as long as you tarry? We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.